This is Father Bonaventure Chapman. And this is Father Gregory Pine. And welcome to Godsplaining. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy the show, please consider making a monthly or daily or minutely donation <laughs> on Patreon. Do we have that option for minute donations? No. Oh, that's okay. Uh, we'll get there. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. Father Gregory. Hey. Uh, let's see. Okay, don't talk about the beard. Um, <laughs> so so the one of the things... What's have, the name of that literary device where you mention a thing by saying you're not going to mention a thing? Like when you're coming at your yeah. political opponent, you say, like, I will not mention his many fraudulent venture capital experiments which have resulted in the loss of thousands of jobs and... But I will not mention it for that would yeah. be, yeah, what is that? Yeah. Prederidio, um, I think. Pre- yeah, it's mentioned by exclusion. Yeah, 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 pre- yeah, I think pre- it's Prederidio. Whatever. Pre- that's yeah. probably right. Yeah, so preterizing. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I was thinking we, uh, our, our listeners might know that, uh, so we, well, you've just come back from Switzerland. True. We're finishing a little, you have to go back to uh, to defend and demand a doctorate from them in exactly. October. To seize um, it from their hands. But while you were over there, we tried to stay in touch through FaceTime and yeah. all those sort of things. And also, we've always we've had a, we had a project of reading uh, uh, books together yeah. from different worlds. So a lot of the literature episodes, the dear listener that you've that you've uh, listened to, <laughs> are the results of us le- reading different world literatures and such. Now, we haven't asked like really people from those world cultures. We basically just went on Google, right, and and typed in best novel in or best literature from mm-hmm. China, Japan, yeah. uh, France, this sort of thing. Um, so we've been, we've been kind of going around that. What, what, uh, yeah. What, what literature have you enjoyed the most? What country have you enjoyed the most? Great question. Let's see. We've done a vast, I mean, yeah. covered a lot, obviously. We've so we've read one territory. book from a few countries. Yeah, so let's exactly. just go ahead and say, what is your favorite literature in the entire world? <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Super Bowl thing. Well, we have to remember what it is that we've read. So in yeah. the English language, we read Thomas Pynchon's Gravity is Rainbow, which is yeah. not going to be anyone's favorite book ever, unless that person, never mind, I shouldn't make an ad hominem attack. That something was weird. About, and then we read As I Lay Dying, which is a bizarre book, William uh, Faulkner. Yeah. Yeah. No idea what happened there or the point of which, maybe that's the wrong yeah. question to ask. I feel like our, our Spanish foray or Spanish yeah, language Spanish foray, was actually our pretty South good. American foray was yeah. good. Um, Hundred Years of Solitude yeah. by Gabriel Garcia That's Marquez. That's a fascinating book. And then yeah. short stories by Jorge, Jorge Maria Borges. Jorge Luis Borges. Luis Borges, Luis yeah. Borges. Okay. Yeah, that was great. Uh, I feel like the Spanish foray was was a yeah. good was a good one. French foray was short and non- we did uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. We did. Uh, Nausea. Nausea. Yeah. Nausea. However you pronounce it. Yeah. Um, Word starts with an N. Yeah. Nausea. Uh, I feel like that was that was okay. That was kind of like a, this is a thing that people read. I understand why people read it. That being said, Maybe it's more of an assignment something. than it is of an enjoyment. Yeah, yeah. Um, what else have we done? Uh, have we done any German literature yet? No, we talked about doing no. Thomas Mann. Magic, yeah. what, Magic Mountain? Yeah, Just Brothers. Um, and, but I think we're going to do Goethe uh, first, right? Ah, we're going to okay. do Faust. Yeah. yeah so okay. that. Um, and then we kind of British, well, British Japanese, we did a... All oh, right, we did a couple of um, Kazuo Ishiguro ones. Ishiguro, yeah, we did Artists in the Floating World. Do we read anything else uh, together? Remains of the Day. Remains of the Day, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Artists in the Floating World is spectacular. Yeah, that's we did an episode. I think we on did Ishiguro, do that episode. Right? Yeah, because yeah, you and you read. Yeah, that was the first episode that we recorded at our first recording session, and as a result of which we hadn't yet figured the technology. So it was like mm-hmm. us going like. Whoa, 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 whoa. So there was a lot of skipping in the uh, video track. We still posted it though. <laughs> you better believe we did. Who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we used to be on tops of. Rub made tubs. Um, so yeah, this is great. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So and we haven't, yeah, we haven't done, we haven't done any Chinese literature or Japanese literature really. Memoirs of a Geisha, we should read at some point. Or okay, something. maybe Shogun. That's not really Japanese. Oh, we did. Did we also do? 
What did we do? We did demons. So we did Russian. Oh, we did Russian. Yeah. 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 Or the possessed, I need to do more. I need, and I need to do. Oh, we did Anna Karenina. We did Anna Karenina. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Dude. I have to teach more right. peace because I'm using Tolstoy for, for my art class. Philosophy of art class. I'm not teaching art. Uh, <laughs> this uh, this this coming ha- fall. Happy clouds. Yeah, happy clouds. Happy clouds. Um, yeah, we haven't done Icelandic. We haven't done that. If there's any people can can send in suggestions. Exactly. for, for things. Drop this a comment. A, suggest yeah. a good book. We'll probably read it, and yeah. we'll have an episode on it in nine months. Yeah. Have we done anything from Africa yet? No, I think we talked about doing Chinua Achebe's, um Things Fall Apart or whatever oh, it's called. Yeah. Man, I just can't come down with any answers with any precision. That's I'm pretty like, good, though. That's that's pretty close. No, yeah. you're doing fine. Your, your imprecision is better than most people's precision. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, but why is this? Because we have mentioned one country yes. that we have that we have done, which is this episode is on um, the Italian literature Mexico. and one of the classics. Uh, this is um, Alessandro Manzoni, and The Betrothed, E Promissi Sposi. Yep. Which I think I was with Italians uh, in Rome for a conference, a philosopher's conference thing, and I think you have to pronounce it like "e promessi sposi." <laughs> you know, they do wah wah. They do a lot of gestures, gesticulating, and yeah. I have theories about languages and language groups and language comportment because to speak a language isn't simply to pronounce it right or to like master the vocabulary and grammar. There's also like a kind of zeitgeist. There's a spirit that goes with sure. the language. Yeah. What I've noticed with Italian is that it's just ever so slightly aggressive. Not in a negative way, but it's like it's the type of thing that you speak pitched forward, and, and a it's bit the type dramatic. of thing, yeah, and and you come at the other person, yeah. which in in the setting in the context it communicates a kind of like warmth and welcome, which I love because it's like it reminds me of living on the East Coast where everything's just like in your face. You might communicate that to you if you were, yeah. I was at this conference and this it was the this man at some point was it felt like he was it was a, an Italian Dominican like he was shouting at some point, yeah. We must, we must understand and appreciate the great Francisco Suarez. And I thought, we're just all sitting around presenting papers. <laughs> like there's no, why, why, why the, why the drama? Yeah. But I think it's just their, their way, you know, yeah. they do kind of, so I appreciate that. And I, and I will never hear nor pronounce Francisco Suarez's um, name without doing that. In fact, when I teach next year, I might just use that as much, just immediately break into yeah. the great Francisco Suarez. The Spanish Jesuit pronounced by an Italian, pronounced by an American. You have to give him the layers. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But anyway, we're not talking about Francisco Suarez, not least uh, explicitly, but rather this man, Alessandro Manzoni, Mm -hmm. if I've got there, Manzoni, um, his book, The Betrothed e Promissi Sposi, which is uh, a classic in, in Italian literature, or yeah. so we're told by Google, yeah. and Pope Francis. Uh, he says, <laughs> he says I've, he said he's read it three times, which may be more than most books um, that anyone read multiple times, yeah. uh, and recommended to all couples. Uh, it's, uh, so let's just give a little background on Manzoni. Hit us. Um, Send it. He is 17, oh, I'm like, look, just shoot, read it. shoot, 1785 to 1873, an Italian writer, um, he's an interesting character, Catholic, of course, he's Italian, but he had a reversion to Catholicism, very strong reversion in 1810, mm-hmm. because his, his wife was a Calvinist, and she converted, I think, in 1808, and so she had this kind of profound effect on him. So, ladies, you can, <laughs> indeed, convert your husbands, but don't marry them thinking that you will. It's just possible. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so he wrote this book, in, this book, The Betrothed, in 1823 first, mm-hmm. and then revised it because of some language things that are not clear. They were still debating whether the what the right way of using Italian grammar was or something. And so yeah. he kind of set the standard in 18, 1840 mm-hmm. with some Florentine, I don't know, who cares. Um, well, do you I've know heard, anything about this? I've heard, I mean, so like there are a variety of ways in which to speak 
Italian or yes. there are a variety of languages on the Italian peninsula. But it's not until the 1870s that Ital- like the Italian nation state is consolidated. Yes. And it's also because of like certain authors that the language takes the shape that it has now. So they make, you know, certain judgments as to which dialect will reign supreme. Obviously, the Divine Comedy is the most significant yeah. landmark in Italian language formulation. St. Catherine of Siena's dialogue mm-hmm. is also another thing that features into that conversation. But from what I understand, he made deliberate choices on the basis of the language as it was coalescing. So I think okay. it's like it's also part yeah. of the story of the, the, the nation state as it comes together. And he's responding to and also setting in. That's fair. Yeah. And it's and he's he had a um, he was particularly kind of a liberal figure, not in the sense of liberal as progressive, but liberal in the sense of um, political liberal mm-hmm. kind of democratic feel of things. Um, economically and otherwise, uh, yet but a faithful man of the church, especially after 1810, such that uh, Pope Pius the Eleventh quoted him in one of his encyclicals. So quoting like authors is not just a modern Franciscan or you know Benedictine uh, phenomenon, phenomenon, but actually yeah. like in that in quotes him on on the on the faith. So which is great. Yeah. But the book we read was Betrothed, um, which is kind of a love story in a fashion. It's long. Real long, um, and uh, it's got interesting parts. We'll talk about the themes. But what's your, what were your first, what were the first reactions on this thing? What you, what did you think? What to make of it? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think so. We read a lot of contemporary literature, much of which is postmodern, and as a result of which, you're just so used to your palate getting cleansed that you forget what things taste like. If that makes sense, like you forget what may have been cloying or. Um, saccharin of past ages. Like you forget what the first order discourse is because yeah, you live so much with the second order discourse. Kind of brushing your teeth as opposed to eating something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just mm-hmm. like downstream of nutrition. And so the thing about this book that struck me first was I, was, I yeah, I was posing the question, is this book just overly earnest? Mm-hmm. Like um, didactic. Yeah, yeah, didactic, kind of over the top, maybe perhaps a bit precious. Or is this just what liter- literature is supposed to be? Yeah. And have we like grown weary of human discourse and have we just spent the last 75 years running around in circles and wringing our hands and otherwise sighing unto death and so yeah my first my first reaction to the book was like this is cute yeah then it just kind of it kind of worked on me over the course of the next 600 pages i think we'll get yeah i think that's right we'll start with we'll end on on returning again for the first time um, and seen it again, the, uh, the, the, our, un, the unrealist, I had unrealism or unrealistic sense because the part of the, it just seems a little precious is a good one too, too cute, too like cut and dry, too simple. And I think you're right because I've been so, you've been so used to eating bitter chocolate, uh, that it, when you have milk chocolate, you think this is too childish. This is not you know? 70% cacao. Yeah, exactly. Although we had someone donated, um, some like full hundred percent chocolate tablets yeah. and you're supposed to, you put those in, in warm milk or something with sugar. Uh-huh. And I didn't know that. So I just put one in my mouth. Wow. <laughs> that is an experience and a half. That's, that is, that oh. is, a, that's a desiccation of taste. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it was like eating chalk. Evacuation of the world. Yeah, it was incredible. Incredible. I should have tried, uh, I should have tried milk chocolate right afterwards. I would have thought I was eating a pixie stick. Exactly. Um, so anyway, so we, yeah, that's, so our postmodern literature often has that sort of feeling. And this is, there's something, yeah, I just think unrealistic, the events, the people, that kind of stuff. You start with like well-coiffed bravos who waylay Don Abundio or Abundio. Abundio. You know, it's just like, yeah. it's like, I'm sorry. We start with highwaymen who are known, especially yeah. for their haircuts. It's yes. like, okay, I yes. guess we're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, it's a long book. Uh, I'll say, and I'll ask you about some, some share, we'll share some themes together about it. Um, Cause there are a lot of themes in it, but one of the other, the genre piece of it is it feels a bit like, I don't know if you got this, it feels a bit like a, a modern 
kind of TV show drama in a mm. way that like you're watching an event and then all of a sudden a new character shows up and mm. looks at the screen and then this frame freezes mm. and then the narrator says, now Don Albandio was not exactly, and tells us mm-hmm. backstory for a while. This was not the first time that he had this, had such thoughts. Exactly. And then <laughs> you tell a little bit of back and there's, because you're always, you're, this book is history. It's the kind of the great man of history model. It's driven that history, it's an historical novel set in the plague time in Milan, 1628 through thirties. Mm-hmm. So it's those time period. Um, this was written to set 200 years before it was written. Um, but at the same time, your anytime you meet a character, you get to hear their full story, yeah, yeah, yeah. and the characters these these people drive history. Mm-hmm. Whereas we're used to again to conflicted to contrast with today, we tend to think of in our postmodern discourse that like we're driven by events. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is an older school model of like actually this man's decisive intervention here yeah. made a difference. But you're always meeting your. You, the, I always got this picture of the camera freezing for a second, mm-hmm. and then like a flashback to something you're telling the story before then reinserting yourself back into the to the narrative itself. Yeah, and I think it's something that we're going to return to, but as a result of which, it gives you a thicker sense of agency. Mm-hmm. You kind of yeah. feel the freedom of the characters in a way that you don't in postmodern literature, mm-hmm. like Infinite Jest, for instance. Yeah. The two main characters, you know, recovering alcoholic and amateur tennis guy, um, you, you don't really have the impression that there's much to be made of their choices. It's a matter of them, like, kind of ratifying where they find themselves or yep. ratifying the circumstances in which they find themselves. And that's a kind of freedom, but it's paper thin. Whereas here, the sense of freedom is pretty thick. Like people choose for and against. They choose to love or not. They choose to live or or die. Um, and like conversion is possible and yeah. betrayal. Like everything is possible. It's all on the table. Yeah. And how are we going to shoot? We're already so far in this episode and we haven't yet talked at all about what this book is about. So people are like, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> we have to tell something about the basic, but the book is so long. There's so many characters in it. Can you just give us a quick, maybe uh, anyway, cliff notes, one second, you know, one minute uh, survey of like, what's the main, what's the main events happening in this book, main story and the people. And then we can talk about a few themes or something before we get back. Or yeah. Try main that maybe main events in 60 seconds are, there are two young people who love each other and want to get married, the betrothed. Yep. So on the one hand you have Renzo and then you have Lucia and mm-hmm. they make an effort to get married. But the guy who lives in the town where they are to be married, uh, like the kind of count, as it were, yeah. or duke, he is a lascivious, that's the word that I saved for this particular opportunity, um, and like power-hungry crazy dude. Yeah. And so he's he wants malefactor. to marry her. He's, he's, he's a malefactor. He wants to marry Lucia, and so he threatens the parish priest mm-hmm. and says, you will not marry this couple or yep. there will be serious consequences. And so then Renzo and Lucia approach the priest. He won't you know, perform the marriage. They try a bunch of different ways to get him to marry them, hijinksy type ways. But eventually yep. both have to flee the city uh, in different directions because, you know, their lives are in danger and their potential love is is threatened. And Renzo finds himself in a big city during plague time. He's accused of a crime. He has to flee subsequently and then work with his cousin. And then Lucia finds herself in a monastery where she's eventually handed over to her captor. And then her captor eventually converts. And then he wants to do good by her. And then they make their way back And together. her captor is not the same man. So this is a, a man, unnamed man. It's not the, it's not the malefactor no, of, yeah. uh, of Milan. But it's a guy um, who so might hand her over to the malefactor exactly, if things yeah. go as the malefactor yeah, yeah. intends. But then they eventually find their way back together, yep. and they eventually do get married. Yeah, and he's and, and the, yeah, the malefactor is converted by uh, Cardinal Charles Borromeo's 
cousin, uh, Federigo Borromeo, who's an Mm -hmm. historical character. Um, and there's also a Franciscan priest in there, uh, Fra Cristoforo. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of characters. We haven't named all of them, but, um, but yeah, so they eventually, and they get back and all sorts of things. So it's kind of a long love story. It's like, Oh man, love in the time of cholera, but love in the time of Melanie's Melanie's plague. Yeah, um, love in the time of buboes. Buboes. Mm. Yeah, that's right. Um, and but around it has dealing some some major themes about, yeah. of course, one it strikes me is is the man and woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Renzo is a kind of hothead sometimes, and mm-hmm. he's just trying to always do things and be in charge of things. Whereas Lucia is is more passive, and not but not in the bad sense because Renzo is always getting into trouble. Mm-hmm. Like he's whenever he's doing things, he's 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 getting his bloods up and he's taking advantage of like you know the the mobs or when he plans out his things, he's actually getting in trouble and they'll continue to follow him and create serious problems for him actually getting married. So his decision to act is actually not helping his final end. Mm-hmm. Whereas Lucia has this more passive resolve to listen to the will of God, mm-hmm. to trust in providence, this kind of thing. And in a sense, as long as she's on track. Uh, with this, you know the book's going to be moving in the right direction. If Renzo's in charge of things, you have no idea where the book's going to end. Yeah. So the kind of the male-female complementarity, the differences about mm-hmm. the kind of softness versus hardness, uh, you know, um, that's that strikes. That's it's a beautiful image, uh, and I think art at its best brings out uh, more sensuously and more imaginatively and more physically, in a sense. Uh, true concepts of things. Mm-hmm. So man and woman here, I think, are presented in a particularly a beautiful way. Yeah, and I think that that leads by interrelation of concepts to a kind of variegated vision of divine providence. Mm-hmm. So God disposes all things sweetly and strongly. He is the primary cause. We act as secondary causes. And you get a real sense of cause in Renzo and a real sense of secondary in mm-hmm. Lucia. Because Renzo is trying to seize life by the horns. He makes a mess of it. Uh, and yet you have a kind of thrill as you accompany him through the streets of Milan and then subsequently of Monta or wherever he ends up. Um, whereas with Lucia, she is more so abandoned to the providence of God. Like you said, she occupies a more passive role. But even that is a kind of exercise of agency. And you see the effect that it has because the unnamed is, you know, in fact, converted mm. or the seeds of his conversion are planted by her heart sickness, her heart brokenness, yeah. right? Her desire to be reconciled with, uh, or her desire to be reunited with Renzo and her desire to escape anything that would, you know, kind of defile her promise before God. Um, so I think that, that that reveals to us a kind of variegated vision of providence insofar as God acts in and through us, but it's something over which he has ultimate and final competence to which we need abandon ourselves if we're going to, yeah, experience it in its fullness. Yeah. Let's switch to, there's so many things to say about this book, and the more I talk about it, the more I think, I actually really like this book. Nice. Um, but uh, maybe I'll say something good about the cler- cler- uh, the clerical state, and then you can say something poorly about the clerical state from this book. There's a via yeah. negativa yeah. and all of that. Um, so, the, so the goodness is, we talked about the unnamed. So the unnamed, who is going to hand over Lucia to her to her uh, to Don uh, Rodrigo, Rodrigo yeah. uh, the duke, um, the nefarious character, the malefactor, uh, the malefactor of malefactors. Um, <laughs> so he, this man, this unnamed man, is a you know he's set up as this kind of cartoonish, vicious kind of guy. Who's, you know, no, no heart, whatever. And and Lucia is presented to him, and just her, her simplicity and her beauty and her gentleness of spirit causes something in him. Uh, she's not intending it, but it's like a seeds of grace, as you say. That then it has him go and 
when he hears about Cardinal Borromeo coming through, he wants to go and meet with him. Mm-hmm. Something he's, he's driven, he has a seed, so it's not a immediate conversion, but a sense of, I've got to look further. And he goes to this cardinal, uh, who then he pours out his heart to, and the cardinal is this incredible character who is historically accurate of going out in the plagues and going to places visiting, uh, and converts this man through his through his words and through his presence, uh, using his priestly power, as far as I can tell, in the way it ought to be used, uh, to bring people that otherwise would think they were better than others, uh, to realize that even in their status of power, you can do you can have power with salvific and good you know holy way. Maybe that's the part of the. People always think, well, let's be. We shouldn't have a hierarchy and such. But there will always be hierarchies in the world. There will always be, you know, leaders, barons, princes of the world. And the church, I think, in its hierarchy, at least as, as when it functions well, or it ought to, its cardinals and its bishops ought to be like stride for stride, matching the leaders of the world with instead of just pure power politics and cynicism, but with with grace and dignity and calling them out. And you see that in in the cardinal. And it, it got me thinking again about yeah, the hierarchy of the church and what cardinals and bishops ought to be and how they they were in the past and such, and maybe some of them, of course, are, but as, and how we ought to support, at least as priests, we ought to support these missions as, because power only listens to, to power, even though it's a distinct kind of power, mm-hmm. priestly, you know, bishopric power as opposed to worldly power. So he's a great character in that, and and this conversion happens, which I suppose we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, whether my fir- your first reflection is there's no way an unnamed villain, you know, would be converted by one, like a beautiful Italian girl, but maybe, I just don't see many Italian girls, um, and then like a cardinal, prince of the church. Um, but we'll get in that second. But maybe you, do you want to talk about another another aspect of uh, clerical stuff during plague time? Yeah, sure. I think, or something else. You can, no, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good free. question to pose because with the COVID pandemic, we all had an experience of this, um, you know, the interruption of our sacramental life. And uh, a great sadness that kind of fell over the church, you know, in the world entire as a result of which. And, um, you know, uh, I think here of John Mulaney's sketch regarding New York Post uh, headlines, like a hero in the New York Post lexicon is just anybody who does his job. Mm-hmm. So hero tutor teaches, a- teaches after school. Um, and we discovered in the pandemic what it means to be a hero priest is just to, to do your job. Hero priest celebrates mass, you know. Yeah. Um, and I, and, and on the one hand, I say that by way of jest, but on the other hand, I say that by way of consolation, because I think sometimes as a priest, you think I need to do all these extraordinary things. If I'm going to equip myself admirably of my duties, like if I'm going mm-hmm. to be like John Vianney, or if I'm going to be like Saints, you know, Dominic, I need to Probably step Gregory up, Pine step or something. Up. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if, but, but it turns out in order to be mm-hmm. a good priest, you just need to do your job. Yeah. And, and I don't say that by way of like, let's just flatten this all to the imminent frame and just yeah. say there's nothing transcendent about it. But I think that it's just a matter of showing up for Christ and showing up for your people day in mm-hmm. and day out. It's boring at times, right? It's laborious at times, but it's a simple work of Christian conversion. And I think you see the way in which like Don Abundio or Abundio, however you pronounce his name, he, he defaults on that because he won't celebrate the sacrament because he's afraid. Uh, and he is kind of enslaved to his housekeeper, or whatever her name is, Perpetua or something like Perpetua, that, yeah. right? Because because he can't stand up for himself, because mm-hmm. he can't actually project an identity and a vision for what lies in store, because he doesn't know who he is, because he doesn't know who he is before the Lord. And so he's looking to escape punishment and make money and carve a way forward for himself because he's lost sight of his priestly identity and mission. But in order to reclaim that, all you have to do is just 
you, you pray, right? And, and you celebrate the sacraments and you preach and teach with a modicum of competence. It doesn't have to be that great. Yeah. Like I experienced this somewhat in Switzerland, you know, not to say, you know, bad things of the clergy in Switzerland, but it seems that people there don't have much in the way of sacramental administration, preaching and teaching, et cetera. So when you show up and you're like, Hey, what if we had mass and then a talk? And then I answered questions and people were like, Oh my God. Sure. Yeah. 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 And also, I think there's an element of, um, it's it's kind of like Graham Greene's, you know, the whiskey priest and power and the glory. There's an element of sometimes showing up and doing your job actually is heroic in the sense that there are forces that would want you not to do that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, often, obviously, we have to bring um, prudence. Uh, there's a book over there about prudence sort of thing, <laughs> about like when to kind of fly in the face of political opposition and such. But if it's like in this case, these people have the right to marriage. It's a good thing that these people are married. Um, therefore it is his, the priest's job to marry them when they present themselves to it, regardless of the, of the consequences. He's worried about his life and his own skin, but it's not asking him to do anything particularly impressive other than the fact to do his job, which might lead to him being uncomfortable. And I think in the same way that the priest, it's not doing the sacraments, nothing particularly heroic about it, but it might, unfortunately, in some situations have to demand you to go in the face of something, but it's just doing what you were called to do. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was thinking about this is the happy endings part. So mm-hmm. we talked about, we think we're swinging here to the kind of conclusion, concluding thoughts, um, that this, you could see this book as a sort of, you know, classic, um, journey of, uh, of tragedy, but then leading to, to good. So it's got, you know, the start that there's a problem be solved There's protagonist, antagonist, and there's a journey and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, don't worry, it resolves nicely. And the sort of thing, we have a climax at some point where, and then you have a kind of a downslide to once you feel, realize they're going to be, so when they meet up at a Lazaretto and such, you know, okay, they're going to get married, it'll be fine. And then you just slide down, everything's hap- happily ever after. And you might think this is too much, uh, too simple, you know, not enough bitter chocolate. But I, you know, I, the book actually doesn't end uh, with everything perfect. Um, their marriage is still, they're, because of, Renzio's past and his political involvement, he's he's actually not fully appreciating the town. They have to move because it's like they don't appreciate him. Like they don't they don't trust him. This sort of thing. His past still sticks with him. Mm-hmm. So it's not like happily ever after entirely. Nor you obviously think at some point uh, the the Duke so Rodrigo. Well, obviously he's going to convert too. And eventually you find him in a Lazaretto. He's got the plague um, himself. And you think okay, he's going to convert. But it's not clear that he does, but it's also not clear that he doesn't. There's a sort of, there are sort of loose ends there. So it's more, and that, I, I haven't studied the composition of this, maybe that's just because he ran out of time. But I like to think that it's chosen that there are loose ends to this such that life can be good and is good and yet not perfect, mm-hmm. you know? And that's, an, so... It mitigates to me a little bit of the um, the potential for for charm the kind of pure charminess and simplicity. And that actually, I just imposed on this thing a framework of didactic moralism and kind of exhort, exhortation and exemplification of particular mor- particular morals. Um, so that my my response to this thing was different as I kind of thought more about it and realized actually, yeah, it's it's not a simple book, mm-hmm. you know. Did you get a changing perspective? Did you, yeah. or are you just kind of similar or what did you, what do you have to say about it? Is it, yeah, is it, is it complex, simple, both? Is it helpful? 
do we is it our fault that we don't think this is charm that we don't think this is a serious book or is it its fault yeah no i think that there are parts of it genre wise that make it hard for us as a modern audience to enter into it but i think that when you do begin to enter into it you appreciate it and i think we can return here to hemingway mm. uh which is one of the first literature episodes that we did in like just around the year mark of god's planning but hemingway says that it's the job of the author to tell the truth it's the job of the writer to tell the truth and I think that um, there, are, there are different ways of falsifying. On the one hand, you can do things a little too picture perfectly, mm-hmm. and it falsifies because it gives you to believe that all ends not only right in the end, but kind of um, this worldly good in the end, in the kind of classic hallmark Christmas movie type indulgence. And, and I think you see that in certain authors, and I think it's a kind of weakness on their part, like a constitutional weakness that can't bear up mm-hmm. um, the difficulty of life while reconciling it to the providence of God and a vision of glory. So like... Dickens, I think, can be this way sometimes. Mm-hmm. And and Chesterton accuses Dickens of this because, and David Copperfield, for instance, Dickens, who has serialized the story, had David Copperfield, the protagonist, marry Dora. And then he realized at the end that he had him marry the wrong woman. So he just kills her. And then yeah. he has him marry Agnes because he knew that was a better solution. But it's just like, you can't just kill your wife and marry another. That's an impediment in canon law. You know, even as an author, though, you need to be like, you need to recognize the fact yeah, yeah. that you might marry the wrong person, but that's the first principle of marriage. You're bound to marry the wrong person. What what matters is what you do subsequently. Yes. And I think in Manzoni, you see something of the complexity of human life. And there's a kind of devastation in every human story, not yeah. to be too dramatic about it. But then the question is, how do you build back or how do you build build up or how do you build out? How do you, how do you proceed from yes. here rather given, than given this let's move forward? Yeah. 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 Rather than erase the past, make it as if it were not because that's a metaphysical impossibility, which God doesn't indulge in, you know? So yeah, yeah. I've also, I have to say it did help me. So the, the conversion of the unnamed, uh, and, and the, I thought initially, ah, this is so silly. And I, I realized it was one of those reflective moments. I thought, well, you know, people do convert they do. like even seriously evil people, um, do convert if if Christ is matters and if you present so like the this this you know this poor this poor girl and then the cardinal uh, Bor- Cardinal Borromeo if you present Christ in a particular way is it a, a foregone conclusion that this will do nothing against power political power and worldly power that they are not human and I thought to myself I'd set it up because of the caricature and this maybe I thought Manzoni was too simple I thought this was black hats white hats kind of stuff and therefore was was saying, well, this is silly. You can't have a black hat turned to white hat immediately. But actually, maybe Manzoni was having them wear grayish hats right off the bat. Uh, and I had projected this because of my cynicism about about the witness of Christ in the modern world. Um, and that I should say, actually, if I live like this, and this cardinal, um, there's no reason to think that you can't convert some people um, through the grace of God and his working and you're presenting yourself as an image of Christ in this particular way. So it, it, it kind of... Sh- cut me t- to the heart about my kind of cynicism and nihilism. It won't do anything to change it, I don't think. <laughs> but, uh, but at least it presented an opportunity, <laughs> an occasion for such change and conversion uh, yeah. in, in a named man instead of an unnamed one. Yeah. Perhaps you too may meet a Frederico Borromeo. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it'd be so great. <laughs> Might be sitting across from one. That's it, folks. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of Godsplaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or anything else that <laughs> Elon Musk owns. Maybe a spaceship. Like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. If you'd like to donate... Give, uh, tithe, you know, 
whatever, to the podcast through Patreon. Please do follow the link in the description. And you can also follow us, the links in the description for, to shop our God's Plane merch with hopefully soon uh, Hold My Kappa merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're going in. And to get information on upcoming events, God's Plane events, which I want to raise two here. No, two or just one? Two, yeah. Two. Final week for the uh, Brevard, North Carolina men's uh, retreat. So this is for, for men. Uh, to do climbing and, and things and active active life stuff. So manly things, but you can any, as long as you're a man, you can come in certain age groups, I yeah. suspect. Whatever. Check on that. This last chance. If you haven't signed up, you probably signed up. Uh, it's a great opportunity in August, mid-August to do that. Finally, the Young Adults Retreat is going to be in Malvern, Pennsylvania. So it's going to be November 3rd through the 5th. Please join us there. Actually, that's that's Charles Borromeo's feast day on the 4th. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there we go. Um, come and join us there if you'd like to get away. If you're a young girl's from 21 to 30, 33, uh, there's information to sign up there, uh, and we'd love to have you. So please pray for us. Know of our prayers for you, and we'll catch you next time on Godspeed.